Hello and welcome to the Federalist Society's virtual event. This afternoon, June 1st, 2022, we discuss courthouse steps decisions, Morgan versus Sundance. My name is Ryan Lacey and I'm an assistant director of practice groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of our experts on today's call. Today, we're poised to have an excellent discussion with two experts whom I will introduce very briefly. First, we have Erica Berg, a partner at Nelson Mullen, Riley and Scarborough LLP. Second is Richard D. Faulkner, arbitrator, attorney, and former professor of ADR law. After our speakers give their remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we will handle questions as we can towards the end of today's program. With that, thank you for being with us today. Erica, the floor is yours. Great. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here with Richard today, who I enjoy talking about arbitration um, much with. So today we're talking about Morgan v. Sundance, which came out last week. It is uh, settled a case where there was a, basically an 8-2 sort of split between the circuits as to whether prejudice to the non-moving party to compel arbitration was an appropriate factor to be considered. Just by way of background, Robin Morgan was a part-time employee at the Taco Bell franchisee, which is Sundance. She filed a um, collective action in federal court. There was a motion to dismiss. She was invited to mediate the case with a similar case that had been filed several years before. That case did not, uh, her case did not settle. When they came back to the district court approximately eight months later or so, uh, then Sundance moved to compel arbitration. The district court uh, settled, said, yes, you're going to arbitration. And the Eighth Circuit said no, um, because there was, um, or, or said yes, because there was prejudice. The question that was then presented at the Supreme Court was, does the arbitration-specific requirement that the proponent of a contractual waiver defense prove prejudice, violate the court's instruction that lower courts must, quote, place arbitration agreements on an equal footing with other contracts, quoting AT Mobility versus Concepcion. And, in, and from there, I mean, we had some interesting briefing and oral argument. I'll to turn it to Richard to talk a little bit about that. Yes, the oral argument in this case was an example of really superb oral argument by very talented uh, litigators. Uh, the Both sides did a wonderful job. They had one of the hottest courts I've ever seen. And listening to the oral argument and reading the transcript indicates that, that those lawyers really had to be on their toes. Um, the party's briefs raised every potential issue under state or federal law for the court's consideration, and the court was having none of it. We got a very rare, unanimous, small, seven-page opinion in which, frankly, the court spent a lot of its time saying, here's what we're not deciding. And it took almost everything that the lawyers tried to raise and said, no, we're not going there. Instead, the court focused very, very narrowly and basically said in one line, the Eighth Circuit erred in conditioning a waiver of the right to arbitrate on a show, showing of prejudice. And it did that based on an assumption. And the court expressly said, we are assuming without deciding that this is the correct analysis because it is the predominant mechanism by which the federal courts of appeal 
that require prejudice uh, use in deciding whether or not arbitration has been waived. And the court looked at it and said, no, uh, it came out with a decision that said something that I think caught many of us by surprise, which is it addressed the FAA's policy favoring arbitration, first articulated in Moses Cone, and said, that's just an acknowledgement of the FAA's attempt to overrule the judiciary's longstanding refusal to enforce agreements to arbitrate. Mm-hmm. And it went and focused on the equal treatment principle. And that equal treatment principle is critical because uh, the court said a court may not favor, or may not devise novel rules to favor arbitration over litigation. Basically, it said when they, the court said equal treatment, it meant equal treatment. And so now we are looking at these issues, and particularly if you read the oral arguments, you will see that Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kavanaugh had numerous questions that relate back to uh, state law. And what is the role of state law? And all of these questions, the court said, remain open. Literally, this decision is a roadmap for anybody wanting to challenge arbitration. And uh, Erica, I know you have some thoughts on some aspects of this. Absolutely. So I, my, what caught my eye when I was reading through this was the use of forfeiture, the suggestion in the opinion, several times in the opinion, where they say they're not deciding this. They say, I'm not deciding that waiver is the right, um, the right issue, but it is, um, maybe it's forfeiture. And as a business litigator and doing business arbitration work, I'm thinking, scratching my head, I'm like, forfeiture? Forfeiture mm-hmm. is not something we see when we talk about breach of contract actions. It's not something that we, we talk about. It's usually left to the criminal context. And here you see this over and over again in the, in the decision forfeiture. Well, where did they get it? They got it from the briefs. They got it from the anarchist briefs where everyone was talking about whether you forfeited the right. In the Sundance brief, for example, they use them, they used the two things synonymously. So yeah. And in, in over and over. So what is it? Um, so I went and tracked back a little bit on this, uh, talking about this concept of forfeiture. Can we really just say no longer are we going to talk about waiver? Or we're going to talk about forfeiture. But we're then back in this, this, to your point, Richard, this question of is it a state law question or is there a federal law question here? Because to me, Justice Kagan made potentially a little confusion for us when she said it was a procedural issue. And, you know, so immediately I hopped as like, is waivers procedural? I would have thought waiver doing that eerie doctrine test in my head would have been a substantive type question, but it really does go back um, to one of the, actually to the petitioner's brief where the petitioner raised the question, oh, well, it's different from forfeiture um, and then tracking it back down to the cases. And Justice Scalia actually had a very, um, a very interesting discussion about the differences between waiver and forfeiture in the Freytag versus Commissioner case in 91. And then in the Yerkes case, I think it's Yerkes case, waiver is different from forfeiture. 
Um, whereas forfeiture is the failure to make the timely assertion of a right, waiver is the intentional relinquishment or abandon of a known right. So back to my questions, if it's procedural, it's based on time, what is the time in the Federal Arbitration Act for moving to compel arbitration? Richard, there is there one? one? There isn't one. And what is really interesting is when you look at the questions from the justices, uh, Justice Gorsuch literally presaged what the decision would be by focusing down on questions to both Ms. Gilbride and to uh, uh, the uh, attorney for the other side, Paul Clemens, and basically said, look, what I'm suggesting is why don't we put all of those things aside? And Lord only knows what Iowa state law defenses mean or any of the rest of that. One thing that Orsich said, we do know, and it seems to control is section six. And what the Eighth Circuit was relying on was federal procedural law. It seems that's what everybody else does. And Justice Gorsuch went on to say, I think with some degree of certainty, waiver, whatever else it requires in federal court, our normal procedure with respect to motions does not require proof of prejudice. And that seems to be the narrowest possible ground that the court could agree on unanimously to say, we're not deciding this really was a matter of procedure or state law or federal common law, whatever that is. Very interesting colloquy on that. But what we're saying is assuming, since that's the predominant analysis of the eight courts that require prejudice, we're going to look at this and say, no, the federal policy in favor of arbitration does not mean you put your thumb on the scale and make pro-arbitration uh, the default. Instead, it means equal treatment. And there's no requirement of prejudice. Therefore, prejudice was not required. And the courts cannot go and create a pro-arbitration standard in any of the federal rules, nor in the FAA. I think something that, that a lot of uh, the commentary has really not focused on is this is a very textualist word by word review. And I went back and looked at GE power conversion versus Articombu, where the use of state law was used in an international arbitration context to fill in gaps and say that since the New York Convention does not preclude by its language use of state law, it was permissible. And if you go back and look at the US Supreme Court decisions, they are focusing literally on every word and every comma in the FAA. And I think that is going to really open a lot of doors. Uh, one thing that I thought was a valiant effort by counsel on both sides was, you know, they tried to get away from the analysis the court ultimately adopted and said, wait a second, let's look at section two, look at section three, look at section six. And the court came back and said, no, we're going exactly here and nowhere else but here. And then we'll send the case back. I noticed that Mr. Clement and his argument seemed to sense things weren't going well. And he suggested that the Supreme Court should repeat shine two and dismiss the, uh, the case as written providently granted. And clearly the court was having none of that either. Right, right. Well, it is, you know, it is fascinating. So, because to me, what goes next, right? So we, we solved this question. It seemed rather simple um, 
in its complexity in some respects that no, you can't add on additional um, requirements here, but all the things that they didn't decide, right? Latches, estoppel, where do you go? What do you do when there's a no waiver clause? Um, and, and in the state contract question um, situation, you've got them all the time where it says, you know, right. failure to insist upon a right in this contract in a single moment doesn't mean that I can't uh, rely on it in the next moment. And there is no intentional waiver of anything. So and you know, respondents you council tried to raise that by going back to the American Arbitration Association employment rules and saying, wait a second, it says in there that you don't waive any right. of the rights uh, because of this provision of the AAA rules. And unlike the AAA rules granting uh, arbitrability determinations to arbitrators, apparently the court was totally unimpressed with this rule. Yeah, and, the one uh, time they didn't take the incorporation doctrine. Yeah, <laughs> they incorporation. That shine all over again on our incorporation, incorporation doctrine. went out the window here. And maybe that presages something we would not have otherwise predicted, saying, you know, that rule seven is uh, questionable in the commercial context. I think it's rule 42 in the employment rules. And uh, that's nice, AAA, but you're not the Congress of the United States, as the Sixth Circuit once said. Um, and we'll have to see how this develops. But and for, for those of our listeners who, one of the, Richard's and I, prior topics that we've talked about in arbitration is this question of, does, if your arbitration clause incorporates the arbitral rules of JAMS or the AAA, does that mean you agree to everything? And that is uh, most courts, uh, most federal courts believe that if you incorporate the AAA rules, then all of that is, is part of your agreement, though I've never known a party to actually pull the AAA rules and read them. Um, we had a the floor in the Florida Supreme Court recently uh, agreed with that. So, and I know the 11th Circuit follows the incorporation doctrine. So if you hear that in arbitration, that's what we're talking about. Um, in, uh, in this particular instance, what was interesting though was neither party's brief discussed section six. And neither party really anticipated, I don't think, the court's focus on you're making a motion to compel arbitration. It's a motion like any other motion. And so the court should treat it not necessarily as a contractual issue, but as a procedural issue. Back to my, to my question. Is, so if it is a procedural issue and you don't have a deadline, what is a district court to measure it by? I mean, are we in a situation now, Richard, where you think that... Um, uh, many district courts in Georgia, for example, in the Northern District of Georgia have uh, standing orders. So you file your case, the judge issues uh, mm -hmm. his standing order and says, you've got to do these things by this time. Will we start seeing if you're going to move to compel arbitration, you need to do it with your answer or you need to do it within the mm -hmm. first 60 days so that you get district courts setting that deadline so that they can apply the forfeiture doctrine. And, and that may well um, I, You know, I know several of the chief judges of the federal district courts here, Eastern Northern District, and know reasonably well. And uh, I can see them putting in such a rule saying, if you're going to move for arbitration, you must do it within X number of days. Uh, and frankly, that would help the federal courts with some of these issues. But you know, let's face it: in the more in this particular case. Uh, the respondent was using a tactic and a technique that in and of itself has generated a lot of litigation, particularly litigation over the doctrine of frustration, where 
the respondent knows, and Justice Kagan alluded to this, you know you have an arbitration agreement. Nevertheless, you decided to take the temperature of the course and I get to go do our green switch routine again. And it's not <laughs> Just oh, well. for all those we were talking about. Thank that, you, environmental. Lights go um, off. Lights yeah. So, uh, you know, we, Justice Kagan, I believe, alluded to this and said, you know, wait a second. You knew what you were doing. You chose to do it. And then you waited for the temperature of the court to see, well, now, will I like it or not? And, you know, as I've said in an article with Phil Lurie, uh, plaintiffs choose where to file suit. There's an underlying assumption in the Morgan case that uh, employment plaintiffs have agreed to arbitration when the reality is most of them loathe arbitration and try to get out of it. So it's the respondent the defendant that has to decide, what do we do? And that ends up involving, well, what do you know about the local judge? Will they grant or not grant motions to dismiss? Uh, most of us have a pretty good read on our local federal judiciary, especially if we're smart enough to be members of the Federalist Society. Uh, and so, you know, there are certain courts, great, yeah, you, you know, that you're probably going to win your motion to dismiss. On the other hand, there are other courts where you go, uh, let me file my motion to compel arbitration yesterday. And that's something that we all have to decide. But Justice Kagan caught on to that. She knows exactly what this game is. And she called everybody out on it and said, look, you've got to make your decision, make it promptly. And right. that's why they focused on relinquishment of a known right. It's, and it is, you know, it, it's forum shopping, right? We're all doing it. it we're we're all doing it. it. I, I relate a, a story where one of my colleagues many years ago at a different firm had filed a lawsuit uh, in the, the days where we were trying to collect debts against the favorite son at, in Barrow County, Georgia. And <laughs> everybody loved him. He given, you know, he probably went, he went to church with the judge. Every, and so we as plaintiff then moved to compel arbitration, even though we had filed the lawsuit and were able to compel arbitration from, from the court. And all of those arguments about forum shopping, about, you know, all of them were made, but because the court put the thumb, and I was able to use all that language, put the thumb in favor of, of arbitration, we were able to, to move it. And I think that's, that tide is, is, switching, right? That's shifting. I think so that you're going to have shifting. to do something early. And if you think it's important enough to have an arbitration clause in your contract, you're going to have to start thinking it's important enough to enforce. Well, then that gets to another point, which is, I think, particularly after seeing Uber's $91 million bill from the AAA right. and Postmates and others, you know, a lot of companies are becoming very unenamored of arbitration. I've had a number of clients just pull the AAA clauses out of their contracts. They won't do it anymore. Um, but I think when you look at the what the court did in the Morgan case, it opens up the door for a return to state court to state law analysis, but an analysis with no predisposition in favor of arbitration. This equal treatment concept is really important. And that means that you know arbitration provisions are the same as any others. And so without that, you know, without that extra pro-arbitration policy, where's it going to go? And I think it opens up a lot of doors to challenges now. 
I think I agree. The issues it really are going to be, is it a, is it a substantive or is it a procedural issue? So yes. when you can't, when you, when you think about it as a waiver issue, right, which is how all of the courts, everybody thought of, have you waived this contractual right to now being a forfeiture issue, which is exactly what uh, Justice Kagan wants everybody to do. I mean, it's, it's all over the opinion, like forfeiture, like forfeiture. When that's not a concept we see in civil litigation, it's not a concept that we ordinarily see even in um, the federal procedural rules that you're gonna have to start, there's gonna have to be a groundswell where we're setting deadlines. It's gonna be in scheduling orders. There's going to be that um, effort to try to create forfeiture as being the way to move forward. The other thing though is contractually drafters for arbitration clauses potentially can draft around those, right? Oh, yes. Is there a way at this point in time, if you want your cake and eat it too, how are you going to think about your arbitration clause to say not just your ordinary no waiver, but that you're going to have a no waiver. We have the right to institute litigation and we can uh, choose arbitration at any point in time. And the drafting is going to be critically important. Uh, I say that as one who has bitten, been bitten repeatedly by my brilliant drafting of the original agreement that became Rena Center v. Jackson. And that's why there are so many peculiar French terms in that agreement, because that's where I come from, uh, Louisiana. But, you know, it, it metastasized into things I never, ever expected. I was simply trying to avoid the Ninth Circuit, uh, which was you know, hostile in those days and enforced by arbitration agreement. And now we have this entire doctrine of law relating to delegation clauses. And I, I didn't predict that. Uh, so be careful drafters. You may find out you're opening the law of uh, unintended consequences, which always works, sort of like gravity. Um, That's right. The, well, the, the other question, too, is and I think this is really an important one, too, because I think the context of this particular case and our consumer, so a lot of consumer arbitrations, we see in the mass arbitrations, the Uber and the Postmates, and then the employment arbitrations, and we've got the issues now with the, the FAIR Act and, and so forth, that what we're really gonna see is how does this play, at least in my world, in the business to business arbitration situation. And you can, I think you can more easily draft in those situations where you've got two uh, sophisticated parties in the arm's length transaction, we still call them midnight clauses, but oh, yes. nonetheless, um, they are, you know, they are supposedly negotiated versus being in a situation where you're going to have um, questions regarding unconscionability, procedural unconscionability, if you can invoke arbitration at any stage. But interestingly enough, particularly when you look at what some of the consumer laws say, a consumer in Texas includes small and medium-sized businesses with net assets of less than $25 million. It is Texas. Uh, <laughs> Everything's so bigger in Texas, that's right. We, we, we address these issues, and I've represented hundreds of automobile dealers. We became so disenchanted with arbitration, we got Congress to change the law. We failed on changing the FAA, so we hid... Uh, the Automobile Dealers Fairness Act in the Department of Justice Appropriations Act, and that had to be passed. So auto dealers are the only businesses in America that do not have to arbitrate except when disputes arise after, uh, and, and you don't have to agree to arbitrate until after the dispute has arisen. And so we put that in there because, you know, 
it was presumed that business-to-business -business negotiations were arm's length, but that's not really true when you represent small or mid-sized businesses and the cost of a single arbitration has driven some of my small business clients into bankruptcy. Uh, you know, it is expensive to do this. It's great yeah. when we represent billion dollar corporations, but if you're smaller, that $25 million and under category of business, arbitration is something you really have to think about. Yeah, it's, it can be very, very expensive and not more efficient um, unless the arbitrator or arbitrators make it so. So it is uh, very, very challenging. So I think- At least what I'm sharing is efficient. <laughs> 11 yeah. months start to finish. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is, I mean, given the, what you can get in, in state court, um, 11 months from start to finish is very efficient, right? If well, we it really have is. That doesn't mean it's necessarily less expensive. It's just on a more oh, no. schedule. Um, but, you know, from a takeaway perspective, uh, for, uh, for me, it really is looking at how are we going to balance the procedural versus substantive, right? So back to the oral argument, back to your points on the, on the mm -hmm. oral argument is uh, there isn't, there isn't necessarily a procedural component built into the federal rules of civil procedure that would allow <laughs> us to say your deadline to move to compel arbitration is X. So we don't have necessarily that. So to me, it's a substantive issue um, on the contract. And then you can contract around it. We will have as many decisions and applications as there is the ingenuity of a lawyer in drafting oh, yeah, uh, yeah. to determine what this is going to be. And I think we're going to see um, some, you know, potentially bad law made on bad facts on, on some of that. But that's the tension. And I don't think it can be resolved very easily without um, seeing what happens in the trenches in our district courts as they and start. And that's going to be something that we'll be dealing with for probably the next 10 or 15 years, because I know I've had uh, uh, cases in which the contracts were entered into in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. And so we're looking at arbitration language that nobody has dusted off or examined for decades. And, you know, people are going, oh my God, I didn't know that was agreed to. Uh, yeah. And so- we will have those arbitration archives and almost no one puts a freezing clause in that says the rules as of X date. So it's going to be very problematic and particularly for international arbitration, when you look at what the court has done, when you look at the constant references back to issues of state law that it refused to decide. Now, what do we do as counsel for corporations when we're faced with these issues of what state law? California is very protective of parties in many instances, but even there you have infinite arbitration clauses, which you know, effectively, if you believe the language in, as the clauses drafted, everybody since creation and until the end of the universe has agreed to arbitrate with XYZ company. And you've got cases like Revit and some others where the courts go, no, you have to look at who you were agreeing a contract with and an arbitration with at the time of the contract and not people five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, or who buy a right to arbitrate. And these things are going to come up because we've got very inventive lawyers. <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, oh, yes. It keeps us busy. It keeps us 
keeps us interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, for a seven page decision, I think it goes back to what you said before. Um, it's more, it's less about what they said, which seemed sort of like mm -hmm. low hanging fruit there uh, and more about what they didn't say. And this grafting on of this, the idea that, you know, forfeiture which is not a civil concept, is the potentially the appropriate way to go, even though there's no timeline. Latches and estoppel, which are mostly, in, in, at least in Georgia, latches is a, is a principle that can only be invoked in equitable situations. Right. So, so where does the concept of equity come into play in a in a, uh, a federal statutory case like this one was, uh, with an overlay of contractual rights? Well, throw in the fun of housing. The Howsam case, which I believe in, in one exchange, uh, Paul Clemens and Justice Breyer got into a discussion of Howsam. Many of those issues are ones that the Howsam court set up for the arbitrator. So what do you do with that? I mean, look, arbitrators are going to find jurisdiction. They're paid by the hour. I hate to be unduly cynical, but I come out of a French culture. We are cynical by nature. <laughs> And, you know, I mean, the, the simple fact is an arbitrator who can make a few hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars or more is not going to fight. I don't have jurisdiction. I'm not going to agree to that. I'm not yeah. going to agree to that. I can't I can't agree to that. I, I'm an arbitrator. We got to look at all our jurisdictional well, issues. I know. Appropriately. You know, and in the international context, it may take us 200 pages to discuss our our, our jurisdiction. Well, that, that's true. But anyway, I will go with the arbitrator will be fair, but I understand the cynical <laughs> point. I will understand the cynical point of view that you provide that says that arbitrators will always find that they have jurisdiction. I don't believe that to be true. So, um, I've raised yeah, whether, it 200 whether, times and gotten it on one. <laughs> <laughs> whether you would be able to convince the court to send it to arbitration for the arbitrator to figure out whether he had jurisdiction. Um, we have seen that in Georgia where the the court sent it to the arbitrator for the arbitrator to determine jurisdiction and the arbitrator determined he didn't have jurisdiction and sent wow. it. So. Now I know of two of those cases. <laughs> there you go. There you go. This is this is great. I love talking about arbitration with you. Richard. Oh, I do I too. So dance. I don't know, Ryan, Ryan. If there are any questions. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just start off with a question of my own. Um, um, and while we allow allow our audience to put questions in the in the Q and A feature, if they if they if they would like to. Um, how do you see this case affecting future cases, both at lower courts and if uh, an issue like this comes to the Supreme Court again? Again, how, how does this look as precedent? It's fabulous because it's simple. Yes. It's simple, right? It says arbitration clauses get treated just like every other contract clause. So that is, it's, it's um, beautiful in its simplicity. You really can't mess around with that. The question then becomes, what do you do with the contract law? Like, what state are you in? We now have potentially um, 50 different ways you address that, you know, yes. contract. So contract law is generally the, generally the same, but rules of interpretation, like the contract rules of interpretation in Delaware are different than those in Georgia. Ours are statutory. They're laid out. You go here, then you go here, then you go here. And this one goes first, this one goes second. Not every state has it. So you're going to get into those um, those types of, of issues. But I think that, you know, for for me, I'm on a little tirade in my own state for the Georgia Supreme Court to start reading our arbitration statute just the way you read every other statute. So I find this decision very helpful in moving to that direction that you don't treat arbitration 
the statute or the clauses differently than anything else. And, and if we can get that mantra, I think it's going to be very, very helpful. So this I, gives I, us that grounding. Right. I agree with that, but I think you have to take it a little bit further, which is uh, the equal treatment principle is clearly applicable. But what does it, what is equally treated? Because I do a fair number of cases in the insurance and reinsurance area. I uh, used to be on the board of directors of a reinsurance company. And so insurance law is highly regulated. It varies state by state. And then you have the McCarran-Ferguson Act thrown in. But when you look at it, does equal treatment mean equal treatment with all insurance? Does it mean in uh, the context of adhesion clauses, only equal treatment with adhesion clauses or equal treatment with all contracts? These are things to steal a, a well-known phrase, inquiring minds will want to know. And we can all litigate these, but unfortunately representing business clients, this is expensive. Uh, you know, it's a fascinating exercise when I was a law professor, but somebody pays for this and I have yet to meet the business person who wanted to pay for these esoteric discussions. That's right. That's true. That's true. Well, we have one question from our audience um, from Kent Sinclair. And again, if you would like to ask a question of our panelists, please put it in the Q&A section. Um, in light of this decision, how do you suggest modifying arbitration clauses to address the waiver slash forfeiture issue, particularly particularly for commercial disputes? And, and so, since Kent's my former law partner, I'll go ahead and hi Kent. Um, I'll go ahead and take that one. And thanks for asking the question. I think you absolutely have to take a, a look at your clause, right? And um, so operating agreements, for example, you need to be taking a look at what the the arbitration clause says right now. But I, I think I would probably say in there that uh, initiating, if you if you really want to be in arbitration, you're certain at the outset you want to be in arbitration, say in there, initiating litigation is forfeiture of the right of this clause, right? That, I mean, you can flat out say, if you file suit or you defend, you answer, um, and do not raise this as an affirmative defense, you forfeited your right to arbitration. Or if you really want to make sure it's there, even if I answer and I do not assert a, a, a compelling arbitration or an arbit existence of an arbitration clause as an affirmative defense or in defense of your claim, I reserve the right to proceed to litigation. On the latter, I think the courts are going to lose patience if you say at any point in time, I can assert arbitration because you're going to have some questions of. Um, of whether there was truly a meeting minds, the consideration going back, mutuality of the obligation, those issues will come up on a contract. But you know, I, I think you can I think you can do it if you really, if you really put your mind to it in your particular contract. I think you can do it by adept drafting, but it's going to present a particular problem in international arbitration because quite often what we encounter are contracts drafted by European lawyers who come out of unitary systems where they do not have state law such as we have. And so you will see in contracts, the laws of uh, in the United States. Well, what does that mean in our context? And unfortunately, the drafting is sometimes questionable, uh, not to say that we can't badly draft in this country too, but 
it, it causes all kinds of issues because now you have to figure out choice of law issues and other such that just cause a lot of problems. And, you know, I think you can draft, but wow, you know, be careful. I mean, I see what happened with Rent-A-Center and uh, I wish I had phrased things differently. And unfortunately, you know, I've had to look at that for the last 20 odd years. So careful with your drafting because it, you may not be dealing with it today, but you may be dealing with it tomorrow or a decade from now. That's fair enough. Now, Erica, you raised something that I think is also potentially fascinating, and that is, um, you know, the federal policy in favor of arbitration has been trumpeted by the courts for effectively the last three to four decades. And so this decision upends a lot of that rhetoric and a lot of those decisions and jurisprudence. And so, uh, you know, I'm already talking with my colleagues at the University of North Texas College of Law to, you know, see maybe some law students would like to write a good law review article on this, or perhaps, Ryan, we can get uh, something in the Federalist uh, so that we can look at this and see, wow, what does this do? What does Morgan do? to the Texas Supreme Court case law or the Louisiana Supreme Court jurisprudence, because it's going to have an effect if there's no preference for arbitration. If it's the same as any other contract clause, wow, that opens a lot of doors. Well, that's we were talking about that before. And I think the question then comes to, for me, is, you know, questions of statutory construction are often approached the same way you would approach contract construction. And statutory construction in Georgia, for example, under our Georgia Arbitration Code, every opinion starts out, well, the purpose of the statute, right? We have this preference to policy favoring arbitration, finality, the purpose. Well, I'll tell you, in every other uh, case, our Georgia Supreme Court is saying, well, we don't follow a purposivist approach, right? We are going to read the statute for its language, except when it comes to arbitration. Exactly. Arbitration is treated with this own little silo where the courts don't touch it. Uh, I don't know, because they don't want to work on them. I don't know, but there's going to be that point. And I think this is a good jumping off point where we're going to take it from not just how do you read the contract, right? How do you approach these questions, but how do you interpret the statute itself? So as Justice Kagan said, we're all textualists now. Yes. Looking back then, and so in your state cases, in particularly your post-award cases, looking at how they apply the, the statute and applying it as written and not with the um, uh, favoritism of confirmation of the award. And, and that's where I see this is potentially going to be very helpful. I think the Supreme Court gave us some guidance in that GE power conversion case because they were reiterating what the rules were for the interpretation of treaties, and they analogize those to statutory construction. And so you have a guideline from the U.S. Supreme Court itself on how to interpret these contracts, how to interpret the Federal Arbitration Act itself, because again, they went through literally sentence by sentence in Section 200 et al. of the uh, Federal Arbitration Act, and the court was very careful in analyzing each provision. So I think it counsels uh, these other inferior federal courts and state courts to look very, very carefully at 
exactly what the arbitration acts say. And I say acts plural, because remember that, you know, the FAA only preempts state law where it is inconsistent or negative or hostile to arbitration. So you can have more ethics, a la California, you can have greater facilitation of arbitration. What does any of that mean? I don't know, but we're sure going to have fun finding out. That's right. That's right. I couldn't agree more. Right. Any more uh, questions from our audience? Do either of you have any closing thoughts on the case? I think it's um, one. I think it's remarkable that it's nine zero, right? But that was because there was some low hanging fruit, I, I think. Um, but I'm still just perplexed. I just throw it out there on this grafting of this criminal and the criminal procedure ideas onto arbitration clauses of forfeiture when there is no corresponding deadline in the federal rules of civil procedure to actually file a motion to compel arbitration. So there are no guidelines. So I don't know how you forfeit something when you've, you don't have a deadline to do it. So, you know, having been a trial judge with civil and criminal jurisdiction, I'm not that concerned about forfeiture, but you're correct, Erica, in that, uh, you know, the court basically looked at forfeiture, considered it, but then they went right back and said, look, here's how we define waiver. And if you know you have a right and you don't exercise it, then you've waived it. And I think that's pretty clear. I mean, you know, I think we need to tell our clients, look, if you really want to arbitrate, don't delay, move and move expeditiously. Don't try and play games that, frankly, most of us have played on the defense side. Uh, that, that particular, well, yeah, and sometimes don't play them, but that particular approach is so dangerous now, I don't think we can do it. And I think, effectively, we're going to see decades of future litigation in this field because this decision has effectively said what we all thought we knew, the federal uh, policy in favor of arbitration was, isn't. Uh, it, it means equal treatment. And that's not what virtually any of the courts had assumed with a couple of outliers. And now those two courts seem to be the ones who had it right. That's right. Well, on behalf of the Federal Society, I want to thank Eric and Richard for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I'd like to thank our audience for joining us and for participating. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. And as always, keep an eye on your, our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming webinars and other programming. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned.